Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Jess Gregson, an optimistic, pragmatic and friendly soul from the north of England. Jess is the founder of Extra Brain, where she uses her impressive experience to help business leaders come unstuck and stay sane. She's also the founder of Open to Everyone, Closed to Racism, an initiative getting businesses to take a stand against racism. If that wasn't enough, Jess is a mega music geek and MCs her own themed social listening party, Sunday 7 Social, every other Sunday on Isolated Talks Radio. Jess says people are actually pretty bad at making decisions. They bring a bias and emotion to the table that can fundamentally affect the quality of a decision. Where you can, always employ processes that help you to remove some of the subjectivity. Welcome to the show, Jess. Hello. Right, seven quick fires. Jess, a beer or wine? Wine, absolutely. There's, there's plenty of room for beer, by the way. Just, just out of those two, definitely wine. <laughs> so ideally both. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, that's perfect. <laughs> Sheffield or Suffolk? Oh, that's really unfair. My hometown versus where I live. Well, given I'm in Suffolk now, I will say Suffolk. <laughs> okay. Uh, number three, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Oh, the Rolling Stones. But I do like the Beatles, so I don't want any Beatles fans to get too upset. By the sea or on the sea? Oh, that's another good one. I'm going to say by the sea because I can see the sea from my desk where I'm talking to you from. And that's a pretty good spot. So I'll say by the sea. Perfect. Uh, a song or dance? Oh, dance. Yeah, I mean, again, wow, these are tricky. You've really done your research. <laughs> um <laughs> Because uh, I do love a, I do love singing, um, but it's got to be a dance. I think it's got to be, um, yeah, it's got to be moving your feet. Stuff like two more agency side or client side. Agency side. Oh, that was an easy one. And finally, this might we might need to explain this later. Actually, does it make life simpler or fuck yeah? <laughs> uh, doing this podcast has got to be fuck yeah. <laughs> Amazing. I feel like we should explain that to the listeners. We probably should explain that. Yes, yes. We've talked about that over a pint before. So 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 they're the two criteria that you try to meet at least one of. Is that right when you make decisions? Yeah, just household decisions. Um, And uh, and really, obviously, only when that's um, me me and Dan, the other grown-up. But yeah, as a general rule of thumb, uh, things either need to simplify life or be fuck yeah, because anything in between it's probably not worth investing that much time in. Amazing. And um, Jess, thank you so much for joining us. We we always ask every guest about the path that they've taken so far in their careers. And I increasingly notice that, that people tend to take a scenic route. So as I understand, you've worked both agency and client side, and you now use that experience to help business leaders as part of Extra Brain. But rewinding a bit, what was your first ever job? And then what was your first, what you regard to be proper job? 
Oh, okay. So my first ever job, I'm trying to think whether I did anything. I, I mean, I probably did pocket money jobs before this, but um, I don't know if um, people still do this, but when I was at comprehensive school, we had to do work experience and I did my work experience at Topshop. Um, and out of the back of that work experience, I was um, invited to apply for a job running a jewellery concession in Topshop. And I was only 16, so I had to get a work permit from the council uh, to do my Saturday job, which was like four or five hours on a Saturday. And then I'd go in once a week and, uh, and do, do a bit of paperwork. Um, but, you know, I didn't, I didn't just sort of stand there by the fitting rooms. Um, I had to be responsible for sort of stock levels and sending paperwork off and merchandising my little jewellery stand. So that was my first proper job uh, many moons ago. It's taking me back. I remember sending the paperwork to Billericay every week. Oh, wow. So how, so how long did you, did, were you working on the jewellery concession? <laughs> I think I did it till, I must have done it till I was about 18, I think, 18, 19. So you must have enjoyed it if that was a good two, two years plus. Yeah, I think it was, um, I also, you know, the, the probably really at that age, I can't remember there being that many other great jobs to go to I think it was just kind of you know it was a really fun team there you know you were involved in kind of the social aspects of working in a sort of shop team especially a fashion shop team so it was good fun and it certainly made me I guess it kind of made me mature a bit as well because you're you know working with people kind of older than me but as I say sort of with a with a degree of responsibility so I sort of had their respect in a way because they knew I'd got to do kind of other things and, and run this um, this kind of division in the shop. Yeah, and then did did any of that experience shape what you then went on to do? Do you think? I don't know if it shaped it, but it did make me think that I I quite liked having you know a role and responsibilities and and having some autonomy actually. And I think maybe that's the bit that I didn't recognise at the time, but the idea that somebody had trusted me to kind of do those things over and above, you know, just really simple stuff. I think that made me kind of understand, I guess, like like that you could sort of, if you proved that you could be responsible, you could kind of crack on and do a lot of parts of a job yourself. And that I, that I ended up, um, I went to university and um, I ended up just, um, I, I went to Nottingham uh, from Sheffield and I... I uh, wanted to stay in Nottingham for the holidays um, and do some work, quite frankly, because I needed some money. And then um, I went to a temp agency and they actually ended up putting me in a, a job just answering the telephone uh, at a field marketing agency. Um, and I sort of wanted to get into marketing anyway, so it was quite a good opportunity. Um, and I sort of went from answering the phones and I think they thought, well, she's quite good at answering the phones. You know, she can take a message and doesn't seem to mess it up and uh, take quite a lot of detail down and, and I was I, I think that early job had given me a bit more confidence to kind of ask for more responsibility and anyway I sort of probably made a bit of a nuisance of myself and eventually sort of tracked down the MD and said look I, I quite like to do some other stuff what else can you get me to do and, and I ended up working there actually from just a chance job a temp job answering the phones I ended up working there all through my degree um, and actually by the time I left university it sounds bad to say but university my degree had become slightly secondary because I was working on the Unilever account and living in London a few days a week and kind of working on quite a big field marketing projects by the time I left uni um, and it, it's not that my degree was a pain in the ass but it was certainly not my kind of big focus because there was this kind of world of work opening up and I was meeting quite senior people and it was really interesting and I could sort of see how maybe that could become 
uh, you know, the start of my career. So was was your degree marketing related then? No, I, I did. A, this sounds really bad. I did, I did a no. Actually, I'm not. I'm not going to say that about my degree because it's really unfair. But I, I didn't do a particularly well chosen degree. I mean, actually, I did. It was a um, something like communication and cultural studies or media and cultural studies. I can't remember. That's really bad, isn't it? I can't remember what my degree was. <laughs> and so, anyway, it was connected, and I thought it would give me enough kind of basic skills to kind of work out which elements of which elements of marketing maybe I'd enjoy and pick up some some pieces that might help me along the way. But as I say, it sort of accidentally became slightly secondary to. To doing a job so I sort of fell into it really I, I got a sense of that's what I wanted to do I thought I wanted to work in fashion marketing to be honest and um, so I had a bit of a sense of what I wanted to do and then this job as I say sort of really out of a series of fortunate consequences came up and, and that ended up really being my focus for that time. It's, it's amazing how often a series of fortunate consequences does seem to shape people's careers but that's I mean and the thing is that's therein lies the problem when people ask you for advice when they're entering university but it, you're probably in in I would assume the minority of people who were studying and working uh, there was there was so much crossover because in my experience, the courses that people ultimately do at university often have very little to no relation to what they then go on to do, which in itself isn't necessarily a bad thing, because I think broad experience is hugely valuable to then you know, grow into whatever career you ultimately do. And the benefits of university are almost passive, I think. They're, they're almost as much not related to the course as they are related to the course. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I, I totally agree. I think people with kind of broad experience and broad interests are often best suited to being adaptable in almost any industry. But yeah, and certainly in marketing and communication, there's so many people have done journalism and, you know, politics and things like that. I think in the end, the blessing of my degree was probably actually not really, I hope none of my tutors ever listened to this, because um, they were really nice people and they were doing really good work. But I think actually the blessing of my degree was that it actually only had seven hours actually in class per week, because that gave me quite a lot of flexibility to kind of, to do to do my job actually, I guess, and kind of learn, learn more and have more flexibility doing that. Because if it meant I needed to travel or if it meant I needed to work different hours I could kind of fit my university work around it so I guess yeah the blessing was was slightly that it was um less focused on lots of lecture hours rather than the fact that the subject matter was related <laughs> but, but that, the thing about random you know random course events is really true I mean I end up I suppose my first kind of my first like, proper London job um I, I went to work at Exposure who were uh, well who are an independent agency and I just happened to meet someone at a gig. I was doing the guest list for a gig in Nottingham and um, and I happened to meet someone who worked at Exposure and made an introduction to somebody and I, I sent them a very, very speculative email um, and they just happened to call me up and say, do you want to come in for an interview? So yeah, I mean, really, I didn't have the intention of moving to London at that point or certainly not. I was going to move, but not kind of then and there. Um, so yeah kind of absolutely that just things that happen um, and you weren't expecting end up shaping quite a lot of your career in your life. So whilst most grads who presumably you had a grad show of sorts if it was a media and comms related degree show whilst most grads were fishing for jobs you had a field marketing gig at Unilever and not long after a job offer from Exposure. <laughs> Um, yeah, that sounds really smug though, but you know, yeah, it sounds know. unfair, certainly. No, but well played. But yeah, well, it, you know, but it, it was just it, it was just a sort of lucky lucky set of events, and then you know, and then 
but but I won't undermine then it was a you know a bunch of hard work at university keeping both things going and I you know but I enjoyed that and it was well worth it so I'm not complaining I didn't do quite so much of the sort of partying and drinking pints of snake bite as other people so um, I don't know I, I mean I still did plenty of partying but um, but I certainly had to miss uh, a few nights at the union just to make sure those things could both coexist yeah no I don't doubt that at all yeah no I don't I wasn't trying to sound flippant either no I don't I oh, don't doubt of course that. not no, no. I know you won't. No, I know you won't. It, it's more me. I'm like a lot of people. I have a tendency to say, "Oh yeah, it all just happened by luck." And actually, sometimes <laughs> you have to remind yourself that actually it didn't just happen by luck. It was a bunch. It was a bunch of hard work as well. Oh yeah, of course, of course. No, but that's great. And then, and then, so I suppose you had the benefit of doing something um, industry related whilst you were studying. But did it always feel like the right path? Because often people take, take detours at all stages of their you know, of their life at all ages. So did did you did it feel right from from those early days? Um, yeah, I just enjoyed it for what it was. I, I don't know if I really thought kind of, oh, I'll just have this, you know, I'll have a... I, I didn't think, oh, this is going to lead to a career of 20 years kind of in and around agencies, uh, although there were a couple of stints client side, you know, I've predominantly been agency side. But I, I don't think I had the kind of quite had the foresight to kind of think at the beginning that's what it was going to be but I but my degree was you know that was a little bit of a kind of uh, that wasn't the original that wasn't originally the path I actually applied to do criminal psychology um, in Sheffield and I made the decision to change it because I decided I didn't want to stay at home which is probably a really bad way of making a decision like that but that that's the honest truth of it um, and that, and and actually I, having studied psychology at A level that's kind of what I thought I wanted to do professionally um, and marketing was the second thing I was going to do. <laughs> Maybe they're quite closely related, really. I was going to say, yeah. Have you have you subsequently found there's quite a lot of criminals operating in marketing? I think I could name a couple. And there, so you mentioned there that so the twenty years experience, predominantly agency side, but you do have client side experience. And actually, in the seventy plus guests that we have spoken to in our two and a half years or so of running call to action there's relatively few that had significant experience in both we spoke to brian mccready a couple of years ago and he kind of shone a bit more of a light on 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 client side but what did you i mean obviously you preferred or we we assume you did agency side because that was your quick fire answer but what were the significant differences and what do you find yourself helping your clients with who kind of need to have someone with that size of both yeah I mean look I, I did a few a few clients had roles um one of them was actually a secondment that I remember my boss at the time saying well obviously you're not going to go and want to go and work for them for six months and I was like why would I not want to do that um that would be a really fascinating uh, and be you know kind of an interesting opportunity to see how that side of the business. I, I think, to be honest, he was surprised and probably a bit disappointed that I decided I was going to go and bugger off for six months. But however long I ended up staying there, but it was a really good experience. And I think the, I think this is the thing I probably always say when anyone asks me about the kind of big insights. I mean, I guess the big thing is, and 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 most people who listen to this will know because they will have spent enough time probably with their clients or in their clients' offices to observe this. And if they haven't, they really should is how little of that time the client really spends thinking about their agencies or, you know, and that work they're doing with their agencies is, it, it's generally a fraction of all the other things they're doing. And I think 
from the agency side, it can get dead easy to get caught up in thinking that the work you're doing for the client is the most important thing in their day. I mean, there's one thing from working for a smaller company client side that has really always stuck with me, which is it's a kind of your question, but I think it's kind of a useful thing for people to think about. It, you know, there were, there were definitely times, having been agency side especially, so as a client, you've been agency side, you can be relatively self-sufficient if you choose to be. So you're not always using an agency because they're necessarily doing something for you that you can't do yourself or that if you pulled a team of kind of independent people together, you couldn't do yourself. So sometimes you're kind of, you're using your agency for slightly different things and it doesn't mean there's any less importance in that or respect in it, but you might be using them just literally to kind of duplicate some of your own skills. Um, And of course, sometimes you're using them to bring new skills you don't have at all or to challenge you or to expand your thinking. But sometimes you're just using them because you really don't have time to do stuff yourself and you need them to take a problem away. Um, and I think certainly in smaller agencies who maybe don't just work on kind of classic advertising, I think sort of really understanding how your client sees you uh, and the role you play, certainly in maybe that kind of, you know, the initial hire is really important because actually how you deal with them and how you use yours and their time is like really changes depending on what they've really hired you for. Um, And it doesn't mean that that might not change over time. And if you have basically been brought in as an extra pair of hands that you can't make that into kind of a bigger strategic relationship down the line. But I think kind of trying to be honest about that is really useful because I definitely had agencies as a client who were like kind of in their bid to try and be as kind of strategic and important as they possibly could be, I've ended up being like a bit of a pain in the ass when really I just wanted them to get some stuff done and I thought I'd been quite clear about that. So that's sort of, you know, I think being honest about that stuff is super helpful. Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, there's, I think there's a slight parallel there when you said about how little a client might be thinking about their agency. I do recall one thing Brian saying, I'm going to remember this badly and put words in his mouth, but he was talking specifically about pitch type presentations where agencies are often guilty of thinking that that's the final domino to fall. But of course, there's still a few others, that, another chain of events that needs to happen once you walk out of that meeting room with that lovely big shiny slide deck you've just presented. Um, and it's it's that kind of, I suppose, you can only see what you can see. But then equally, you need to understand that then the client you've pitched to, they've got their own stakeholders and conversations and all sorts of other processes to follow their side for something to ultimately take shape. So what did you learn then? So during your time then in agencies and part of that agency leadership, what did you kind of enjoy or or learn the most that made you want to set up extra brain? Is it that we all need an extra brain? Well, I think actually, I suppose there's a, a series of things. I think one... I definitely kind of have observed that when I've worked in sort of strong leadership teams where you really have got, I guess, kind of peers who you can bounce stuff off, that that's been the most fun and and, in, and that's been kind of, they've been the most enjoyable roles where you've either got kind of a bit of a sort of hierarchy in that senior leadership team or actually when you're in smaller teams where there maybe aren't those people around or the relationship is different it's much harder you know agency leadership is can be really lonely if you haven't got the right people around you so having having people around who you would be as happy to go for a pint with as you would sort of thrashing out a really difficult problem I think has been kind of they've been the things that because you know like running any business 
it is really difficult. It, it doesn't run a linear path. There's things that you're not expecting to trip you up that trip you up. Some of the things you kind of are expecting to trip you up don't, and then you need to run really quickly. And, you know, there's just all sorts of things. And actually, if you haven't got people around, you can just bounce stuff off. That gets really, really hard. So I suppose there was kind of that. And just the, yeah, just the the myriad of things to think about. Like I, I always say this, I was probably being people cursing with sense, but I always think kind of an MD role at an agency is a little bit of a sort of, I don't know, it's a bit of a poison chalice. It's, you really are expected to be kind of everything to everyone. And unless you're in a really, you know, well-developed team and you've got a great senior leadership team who just report on all their different kind of areas and disciplines to you, which for most smaller businesses you don't have, you, you know, one minute you're the head of HR, the next minute you're reviewing a contract, the next minute you're kind of in a pitch, the next minute someone's bringing a client problem to you. And the context switching is like, it's just really, really difficult. And then if you're doing that and you haven't necessarily got kind of a bunch of people around you who you can easily bounce stuff off, that becomes not only quite taxing, but also can just become a bit of a grind quite quickly. Yeah, in our, um, we were joking pre-recording about the <laughs> the extensive research I have in front of me right now. Um, but one of the uh, one of the great testimonials and quotes which I've highlighted from one of your clients is um, describing you as an extra brain when mine is full of other stuff. And I certainly know that even in my relatively minor position running a, a very small team here, how quickly you can feel like your brain has too many tabs open. And, and you're right, the context switching can be very tricky to, to juggle. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I really agree. And it's kind of, I mean, not all the businesses I work with, are, I mean, they're not all agencies and they're not all small, but certainly for, you know, I've worked for the last, I mean, we sold a small business to a large business and became part of a large team. But certainly when I've been in those sort of smaller teams, yeah, like the, the people around you and the people you can just grab to pull into, even if it's not a problem, even if it's an opportunity and you just want to kind of, I don't know, you just want to chew the fat on it a bit or or maybe you want another perspective. Um, you know, if you haven't got those people around you, it's really difficult. And actually it's kind of one of the things, I mean, there's a there's a bit of extra brain which is is partly about me. I, I realised and I think I've learned in the last ten years, I'm really, really nosy about businesses, how they work and who's in them and which bits are good and which bits are bad. And and I find myself, even when I'm kind of meeting people in quite informal situations who I've got, you know, we there's definitely not potential we're ever gonna to work together. If they start talking about their business, I'll find myself very quickly being incredibly nosy. Um, so there's part of it which is that as well you know it fulfills my need to be nosy about people's businesses <laughs> and and then so um I've, I've not actually explained and i haven't asked you to explain so so can you explain what extra brain is and, and how you typically help businesses because you just mentioned you work with businesses of all shapes and sizes yeah i, I guess kind of what it, i mean look it, it is a bit kind of does what it says on the tin but it is kind of a helping hand really for leaders who want to make progress um, I suppose slightly differently to a lot of what I see as relatively new as well. So, it, you know, kind of I don't I don't I don't I'm not sure I quite have my completely pithy elevator pitch yet, because there's a lot of clients who come into this business who I've been working with for a long time. So um, so I haven't really needed to. But um, I guess it's a bit different from some of the other things I see in the market in that it's not just focused on it's not just geared up for growth or for sale, although that might come into it. It's really about kind of helping clients get their heads up regularly, set, set a plan they're really excited about and 
then be there along the way to make it happen. So it's kind of most of the clients I work with are somewhere between either a kind of non-exec director role or or we just might call it an advisor. But whereas a non-exec might sit in, might just sit in board meetings, be able to offer advice and may may well be kind of available outside of those board meetings um, and be able to offer kind of advice or thoughts from their experience or a different perspective um, we'll also sort of design working sessions so that we might come up against something in a board meeting where there's a bit of a barrier, we maybe want to explore it, and then we'll go away and design a workshop um, or look at kind of possibly a service design exercise that might help them kind of understand that particular problem in a slightly different way. So it's kind of somewhere between having a kind of a business consultant and then a kind of classic non-exec and then, and, and I guess, versus having an advisor who might come into your business work with you on a specific problem and then walk away importantly we're there throughout the process to hold your hand um so it's not just like a trainer who gets you fit for the marathon we run the marathon with you and kind of stay walking with you after that and then go to the pub with you after that bit you know it's a long-term program not really a program it's just a long-term relationship where we kind of help leaders through making the progress they need to make and and stick around actually and hold them accountable and challenge them, but also support them. Um, and, you know, and I've ended up being there in a kind of in various capacities for people, which kind of, I suppose they blend somewhere between being a coach an advisor, a mate, you know, a kind of a more traditional consultant. Um, if that makes any sense, hopefully to some of the listeners, it will do. Yeah, no, it makes complete sense. It does make complete sense. Do you find yourself repeating? I know, I know you mentioned quite rightly that extra brains relatively new, and you don't have necessarily a pithy elevator speech. But do you find yourself repeating the same uh, pieces of advice, or at least observing the same problems, for want of a better word, or challenges across all types of different clients? Um, yeah, I mean, there's certainly common problems. I, I wouldn't say ever giving out the same piece of advice because I. I don't think, and counter to, I know kind of um, some of the kind of alternative models I've looked at. I don't, I don't necessarily think there are just a kind of series of cookie cookie solutions to trying to sort of grow or change a business. Um, they end up being quite, really quite different depending on the context around an organisation and the people actually, and what they really want out of being involved in that in the first place. There's definitely sort of themes that run, run across there's the old thing and I think this is really true in agencies um, and I'm sure some people will nod as I say this saying no to stuff so sort of sacrificing sacrificing some things there's, there's been a lot of I think and, and there's loads and loads of people who've spoken about this really eloquently but there's been a lot of kind of we do stuff for people agencies around for quite a long time who'll do a bit of anything that comes their way and I think there is a bit of a typical problem of sort of, and we all have the pragmatic issue of you've got to keep turning the lights on and that's really important, but that doesn't mean you should just do any job that comes through the door. So I think there is a bit of a perennial thing of working out what to say no to um, and working out what you really want to do and importantly, what you're really good at and where you can have impact, Um, which isn't always about specialisation because I think that worries, scares people a bit. I think specialisation can be really, really good. It's not right for everybody. But I do think sort of learning to say no to stuff and not being afraid of not not thinking your business is going to fall off a cliff because you start saying no to stuff. I think that's one thing that comes around quite a lot. I think not being able to get all the different, I think actually for leaders, not always being able to get the different types of help you need, which is kind of related to the point I made earlier about 
who can you just reach out to um, and how can you get your hand on, hands on sort of different types of advice and different ways of making decisions. Um, I think people are not always great at understanding exactly what sort of advice and help they might need. And then it feels like quite a big job to go and find that, to find someone who you trust to do it, to get them up to speed. So more often than not, people just don't do it. I think the old adage of time to work on the business rather than being in the business, I think everyone can recognise a bit of that if they're heading up a business or a team. Just getting, literally getting your head up a little bit and thinking about the next month, the next quarter, you know, even the next five years sometimes, although, you know, five-year planning is notoriously difficult and a lot of people roll their eyes at doing it. It is important. I think to think about kind of how what you're doing today fits into a bigger framework and and ideally to be thinking much further down the line than that of how is what I'm doing today fitting into a bigger picture of what I want my life to be um you know not not in not in one year's one year time or five years time but in 20 years time well yeah I've I've, I've heard you talk about breaking that down even further haven't you and I, I think the idea of a five-year plan can seem overwhelming but then when I read or talk to you about your 25 year plan <laughs> it seems relatively easy ah uh, well that's something that's something i pinched from uh, a guy called dan sullivan who runs a program called strategic coach which um, i'm sure some of you will have heard of but he talks to entrepreneurs about doing a 25 year plan and i think i mentioned this to giles but it's because the sort of rationale is if you ask people to think about something in the near term they'll think about what's achievable and if you ask people to think about something kind of in the in the bigger distance um, they'll think about actually what they really want. Um, and, and there's there's some nuances of the kind of way he describes it and how he works with entrepreneurs, which is slightly different to, um, I guess, the way I would apply it. But I, there is something really beneficial in thinking about a kind of really long-term, I think, vision, I don't really like that word, vision of where you want to get to in your life so you can really try and see if what you're doing today is any sort of stepping stone to that. Because if it's not, then either, you know, you've got to either really understand if you have to really understand sort of why you're doing that thing now or perhaps do some other things that connect you a bit more to that 25 year vision yeah no it's a really it's a really good point and uh, that makes complete sense that when you think that far ahead something that isn't doesn't feel like it's in the immediate future then of course you're not going to have all those other I suppose elements getting in the way of actually truly thinking about what you want rather than what's achievable in five years that's really smart yeah I think look I think there's some really I think there's some also some really sort of um, common problems that are to do with kind of where we are right now that are really timely and I think part of it is sort of uh, part of it which is happening across a lot of industries is finding the right people but I think that's a real challenge for most industries at the minute and then when you've found the right people, if indeed you can find the right people, being able to kind of keep up with their growth and development, that seems to be, finding the people seems to be a very sort of, a very sort of timely issue at the moment. But I think people have always struggled with really making sure you kind of keep up with growth and development so you can keep them. Um, and, 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 you know, I'd say keep them in the long term, but I think you have to be realistic, especially in sort of agency land that the long term probably isn't the sort of long term that, you'd really like it to be because people will tend to want to have variation in their career and they'll want to be able to show kind of change throughout their CV. So you've got to be a bit realistic about that. Um, And I think there's another one, uh, which is a thing that's kind of come up understandably recently is trying to sort of strike this balance. I don't want to talk about remote working and flexible working because everybody's talking about it. But it's been interesting recently. I, I think I've been working with clients who I guess kind of really 
they're really starting to understand some of the quite actually, quite critical things that working together in one space were really helping their business to kind of tick along a lot smoother, but that maybe they're things they'd always taken for granted, you know, just little, those little kind of five minute conversations of problem solving. And that, and they're things that are taking some of that stuff away and they're things that are genuinely costing those businesses money right now. And so I think, you know, finding, finding new ways of making that flexible working um, and combination of kind of in-person and remote work, I think that's, something that's probably not going to go away for the next few years as a challenge for people I'm working with. No, I think you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Um, I mentioned in your intro, open to everyone, close to racism. Can you just explain a bit about what the initiative is to those listening? Yes, I can. So uh, maybe I'll, if you don't mind, I might step back to sort of how it started and then it sort of helps, I think, sets it into context a little bit just to... um, to explain why it takes the shape it does, I guess. I started it because I wanted to take some uh, meaningful action after the death of George, George Floyd, like a lot of people. And, you know, am I particularly pleased that it took a trigger like that to make me think about being more proactive? No, of course not. This is stuff that I really care about and I should have been thinking about anyway. But, you know, that's the truth of it. And I was sort of sat in our quite quiet coastal sort of very small town, which during COVID was a bit of a ghost town and thinking if I lived in London, I'd have been out protesting actually and I I knew people who were and I sort of thought, right, really I, I could protest here. But as I say, at the time, it was kind of a bit of a ghost town and I thought that's not going to be quite as impactful as I would want so I'm gonna try and do something different and that just really started me thinking about kind of the things I know and I guess I'm fairly good at kind of getting people together and making things happen um, and I spend my life nosing around businesses and and I started to think about maybe how the some of the options that were open to big organizations and actually you know I guess through a lot of people I know on Twitter I was seeing a lot of big agencies and things kind of ramping up efforts to train people, ramping up, bringing in consultants, bringing, putting extra budget and giving extra priority to their existing HR and inclusion teams, you know, in reality, probably nowhere near enough budget and probably nowhere near kind of um, enough priority and attention. But still, they were doing stuff which was kind of over and above some of the important but more symbolic actions. And I thought, right, if you're like a cafe on the high street somewhere or a small five-person agency struggling in COVID, like how do you do something like that? How do you still play a role? And, you know, I did small business myself. I thought, well, you know, I I can't, it's quite difficult to sort of bring in a third party to kind of help advise on that, just just purely from a kind of time and resource perspective. So I thought, and actually one of the things I'd observed, and I'd had this observation before when I was thinking about trying to build a more diverse development team in a previous business, you get this kind of caught up in this, if you don't know what to do and you don't necessarily immediately know how to access the right sort of help, your good intention it kind of quite quickly turns into inertia. Um, and it's not because you don't care about the topic and, and it's not that you don't keep striving to do it, but that inertia sort of sets in and you end up doing things more slowly or you quite easily end up kind of doing nothing or doing a bit. Um, and I thought, well, there must be something you can do about that. And, and especially felt like, an area where people were very nervous about doing the wrong thing and and they were nervous about doing the wrong thing for the right reasons because 
Um, they wanted to make sure they were, you know, doing good and not harm. Um, but I thought maybe if we package something up and stop that, stop that kind of inertia setting in, stop that fear setting in, maybe that would help more people in sort of smaller businesses to take action. So um, I started thinking about what that might look like. Um, and we pieced together sort of three critical things. So open to everyone, close to, close to racism is fundamentally um, a membership program. And when you become a member, and it's super, super affordable, it's like £25 to £55, depending on what you want to get in your members pack. But you get, I guess, kind of three things that I thought were quite critical. So you get a ready-made campaign and materials for your business that's posters, window stickers, messaging, social media assets. So that's all done. You haven't got to kind of worry that you're going to say the wrong thing. That's I work with a really brilliant diverse steering committee um, who've helped me kind of sense check everything. We've put everything together with expertise and brilliant consultants in um, DEI. So you've got this kind of campaign ready. You've then got free education resources on anti-racism, on allyship and inclusion. They've been put together, as I said, by a specialist partner. They've been put together by Utopia, who are an amazing culture change business. And then we have things like discounted and really cost-effective e-learning courses um, from Utopia in the Hobbs Consultancy. So you can educate your teams. Uh, you've got a campaign ready to go. And then the third component is um, all of the money that isn't that doesn't go on print. So there's no profit in it. All the money that is that from your pack cost that doesn't go on print uh, goes straight to beneficiaries. And our beneficiaries are people who are taking a really hands-on approach to, to basically uh, improving the uh, career prospects and helping entrepreneurial endeavours of people from underrepresented and marginalised groups. So at the moment, our beneficiary is Create Not Hate. And I think, if I'm not wrong, you hopefully have Rania and Trevor on from Create Not Hate in a future episode. Also, I don't the brilliant Quiet Storm. Um, I'm sure they'll have really interesting things to say. But Create Not Hate are our first beneficiary. So you've got these kind of three things. You've basically got your campaign ready. You've got some training and education resources for your team. And then you're also providing a donation and know that that's going to get basically channeled into, uh, you know, other business people, other people's careers, other people's organisations. Um, so that's the start. We, it's UK focused at the moment. And, and we're constantly looking at ways of improving that resource library and looking at some more uh, sector specific um, sector specific resources for people but that's the fundamental of it um, for anyone listening who thinks that their organization maybe should sign up quick plug you can do so open to everyone close to racism.com yes excellent well, well we'll include a link in this listing uh, so anyone listening now they can just see in the listing itself a link to to get behind and, and support this. So it's, it, I mean, it's obviously still early days and people can still get involved. Oh yeah, we've we got new members signing up every week actually. And um, it just feels like it's starting to kind of uh, speed up a little bit, which is kind of interesting. And, it, and if people do sign up and they've got ideas or their specific resources that they think they would like to use or find for their business, um, you can always get in touch. We're, we're trying to sort of find the most common themes um, for organisations so that then we can go to sponsors and then, pay specialists to put together free resources for members. So um, if you uh, if you do become a member, then uh, do let us know what else you need because that all goes into a bit of a bank of data so we can try and do something about it. Perfect. Well, thanks, Jess. I mean, you, I'm not going to clumsily ask any, any more questions about that because you've covered absolutely everything. That was perfect. But I'm pleased that we've given that a shout out. I'm going to move on to listener questions. I'm mindful of the time, as always. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. 
but that's not stopped us asking. So we've got two for you, Jess, starting with Graham. Graham asks, what are some practical steps a business leader can take when they start feeling stuck on a problem? I would say always when you start getting stuck, you probably need to sort of break it down. I know this feels like a really cliche thing to say, but it really is true. You've got to try and I would try and break it down into some really simple questions um, and try and work out kind of what the fundamentals are. And then once you've got that, once you've got the, the sort of thing you're stuck with a bit more separated out, you can then start thinking specifically about whether there might be either exercises or even just discussions you can have about those specific blocks um, and then as much as possible try and sort of ladder that information back together rather than just approaching the big thing you're stuck with as one lump because you'll never really get there uh, and, and I would say you know what I'd like a really really simple thing to do is to start talking to some people about it but ideally not people in your organization yeah that's important isn't it yeah just 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 to get just to get a bunch of different perspectives even if actually some of those perspectives aren't that useful in in the, uh, you'll find the more you describe a problem to other people um the more you start to unpick it yourself a bit as well and you can probably take out components of what each person says in response and find somewhere in the middle of all that is kind of a decent start point for your next step yeah that's a really nice way of putting it i've i've uh, i think i've experienced or at least when we're trying to elicit feedback or any types of thoughts from other entities be they clients or or colleagues it is useful to know what doesn't work for something simply because what someone doesn't like or doesn't think works only removes things more and more to the point you get what it should be or what it does what it does need to do and also sort of I think there is something to be said for just remembering that at some point you will get unstuck because there can be times funny enough I I was sort of thinking about this earlier when you're talking about themes there's a little bit of we always we kind of and again I'm not sure if this is I don't think this is really an agency thing we sort of always want there to be a solution when we're stuck with something a solution which is kind of elegant and uh does kind of you know that 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 once we thought of the solution everything will be fine and you know I do spend a bit of my time especially when I you know I can get in get into the weeds of problems with clients quite a lot and it, it may be that they've got an issue with a client and they're trying to unpick that and it somebody has to say at some point there isn't really a neat way out of this one like it's going to be quite messy so just like roll your sleeves up and we'll wade out together because it can be a bit tempting to kind of feel like there'll be some neat way of getting unstuck which will be perfectly elegant and everyone will be happy and sometimes it just isn't but at the other end of it you will be unstuck and the worst will be behind you and that'll be fine yeah 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 exactly um, number two then, Jess, is from Emily. Emily asks, what are some of the highs and lows of living on a boat part-time? And don't say the tide. <laughs> oh, well, my boat is on a canal, so I don't have to worry okay. about the tide. But it was but, but a nice joke, nonetheless. Oh, the highs is always going to be the connection to nature. I mean, this sounds really smug, but I've been in, in fact, I remember being in some, like, especially when I was in my last agency role, I remember being in some like really sticky discussions and, you know, you're kind of trying to unpick. Uh, I remember some picking one particularly lumpy problem with a client. And I thought, well, everyone else is probably doing this from the office and I can see a kingfisher out the window and it's fishing and it's making me feel better about this whole thing because this conversation is pretty dire. So connection to nature, absolutely. That's got to be the high. I, and I, I'm going to say I can't really... I mean, I, I'm going to say this is a low, 
but I don't actually deal with it. It's as if this is a this is one of the tasks that gets outsourced to my husband Dan. Um, it has got to be emptying the black water tank, <laughs> which is, to be honest, is a thing that all gets done by machinery, and you don't really have to get particularly close to. But even at that distance, I don't do it. Amazing. Funny enough, I think past guest and really good friend of the show, Amy Keane, had a, I believe, a couple of years living on a uh, houseboat. I believe on the Thames, um, but a but a, a mixture of reasons, not least a bit of a tosser of a landlord, as I understand it. Um, she no longer resides on one, but I think there's something really appealing about the idea. Oh, yeah, it's brilliant. I, I mean, you know, I don't live on it full time anymore, but I did. And it's great. And if anyone's thinking of doing it, it's definitely adventure worth having. It goes in the fuck yeah, it goes in the fuck yeah category. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Of course it does. And it's I can't imagine it makes life simpler anyway. No, no. I, and, you know, I actually, very quickly, it really doesn't. And here's a great example. My husband was on it the other night. And um, obviously when, when it rains a lot, the water level increases. You really do need to slacken your ropes off. And he'd forgotten to do that and gotten back quite late. And it really sort of like biblical rain. And then woke up the next morning to go out to a meeting that he was dashing to, put his foot out of the door of the boat and there was nothing there. And uh, actually the water had risen so much that it had snapped the mooring pin out and the boat was just floating around in the middle of the marina. <laughs> so, yeah, sometimes it's definitely not simplify. Yeah. Oh, my word. Is that quite common? Is that, is that, I imagine that's a No, it's only, it's only ever happened. It's only ever happened at one time. <laughs> but to be honest, I mean, you know, I could, there's a myriad of things that are, just when you're trying to get out the door quickly or just when you could really do with a bit of a break, there'll be something inevitably, which is a bit of a pain in the ass goes wrong. So you do need a bit of a sense of humour as much as I said it's fuck yeah. It's not simplify, that's for sure. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, so the final part of the interview is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests. Starting with number one, what advice would you give to your younger self? At the risk of sounding like a kind of silicon valley cliche uh start i, I wish i had to, could tell my younger self to start meditation and yoga earlier actually both things that have benefited me massively and if somebody had told me and certainly with yoga if somebody had told me how much that would benefit my kind of future health and flexibility i know that yoga people don't like talking about flexibility but had somebody told me that earlier, I would have started doing it earlier. And I suspect I'd be able to kiss my knees now, which I definitely can't do. Um, <laughs> and, and, and if anyone, had t- and if I'd been able to tell my younger self that meditation would be so good for my entire outlook on life, I would definitely have started doing that earlier. Uh, okay. Do you think your younger self would have listened? Yeah, probably. Yeah. For, for an old cynic um, who's quite scientific and pragmatic, there is also a kind of a bit of me that specifically likes some of those sort of, I guess, more spiritual practices. So, um, yeah, I think I think I would have listened to those things. I think there's loads of things you could have told me that I would have, yeah, not listened to whatsoever. But those two things, I probably, I'm, you know, my parents were kind of really sort of, uh, I guess, stereotypical sort of 70s hippies, 60s, 70s hippies. Oh, brilliant. They're the best sort. And just quickly, are there any right, I know there's no right way or one way to meditate, but how do you find it best with music, without music, in the wilderness, at home? Oh, I mean, I've been meditating for about, ooh, 
not eight years, seven years, six years now. Anyway, I would I would just say if to, to somebody new, I would just say use Headspace because it's a really really brilliant way of getting into it and it simplifies it. And don't expect it just to kind of happen. You do have to actually put the work in. It's kind of not not a thing that you just comes to you overnight. You do have to genuinely put the effort in. Um, but 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 what I've found in the last few years is I can meditate pretty much anywhere um, if I really want to. Uh, number two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? <laughs> I feel like a bit of a fraud answering this because I don't really think I'm really in the industry. Uh, I would. My, it's 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 probably a bit of an annoying answer for anyone who works in an integrated agency. But I'd say agencies are claimed to be good at everything. Good one. We've not had that before, actually. I'm wondering if that links at all to the um, learning how to say or when to say no. But I suppose. The claim comes well before the opportunity to say no, so perhaps not. I'm not sure. I think it does. Yeah, it does a little bit. Number three, Jess, are there, are there any books that you can recommend to our listeners? They don't have to be books on shop. They can be uh, fact fiction and anything in between. No, that's good because uh, I was I did know about this question and I haven't really read any industry books for a little while although I really probably should. Uh, two things I've read recently that I've really enjoyed one is a book called Utopia for Realists by a guy called Rutger, Rutger, Rutger Bregman, which is, yeah, it, it's well worth looking up. It's an interesting read. I won't wax on because I'm um, conscious of time. But, yeah, check that out if you haven't already. I know loads of people have already read it. So, And the other thing I'm reading at the moment uh, is I quite like a memoir. Um, I'm reading M Train by Patti Smith, um, which is a second mem- memoir. And to be honest, I don't, I'm not actually enjoying M Train that much. But when I knew I was going to be asked this question, it did make me think how brilliant Just Kids, her first memoir is. Um, and especially if you have a bit of a kind of romantic, rose-tinted love of New York, um, it's definitely worth reading. It was a real like, emotional roller coaster. I think I cried about five times during reading it. So Just Kids by Patti Smith would be my other one. I loved that book. Okay, amazing. <laughs> well, we'll definitely link to Just Kids as well as In Train. Yeah, and In Train I'm struggling with, I'm not going to lie. Okay. <laughs> that's a, a glowing recommendation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's good. And, and to be honest, I, I know that, that those have never come up before. And it's always nice um, and quite rare that we that we get recommended or books recommended that, that have not come up before. So that's great. And number four, then, is we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour, depending on your view, to our guest who has to give their reason why. Um, I'm going to dedicate this episode to a fabulous young creative called Olivia Emma. Uh, She's currently a designer at Havas, but she's got her own studio and she's worked at Iris and Wyden & Kennedy. Um, And I mentor her through the Mentor Black Business Programme. Um, which everyone should check out and sign up to. If you just Google Mentor Black Business, you'll find it. Um, I wanted to dedicate it to her because I think she's one of a breed of kind of interesting new creatives who certainly were not really around much in agencies when I was working in them. She's sort of somewhere between a kind of conceptual thinker and she's an artist and she's really passionate about narrative, but she's also a technologist and she creates AR lenses and she loves playing around with VR and she's a photographer and a graphic designer and a filmmaker um, and and someone who kind of I guess really understands kind of interesting quite complex ideas but then can also sort of noodle around and execute them um, and it's all kind of in one brain I think it's really interesting uh, I think lots of agencies will be looking for people like that because there's certainly 
were few and far between. I have met a few of them before, but there were relatively few and far between um, in my days in agency. Or that if they if they did, and certainly people who were noodling about with technology, they were kind of in the digital department and they didn't really get classed as creatives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's very true. Very true. Okay, fantastic. Well, this this episode is very proudly dedicated to Olivia Emma. Brilliant. Um, there's a final call to action then, links to everything discussed on this episode listing. So we've got Just Kids, N-Train, Utopia for Realists, Open to Everyone, Close to Racism, and of course, Extra Brain. I feel like we should give a plug out to Sunday 7 Social too, which will be happening the Sunday after this episode is released. So would you like to do the honours? Oh yes, we should give that a plug. So uh, bi-weekly, on a Sunday at seven o'clock GMT, I have to remember to say GMT because we've got quite a few people who participate from other countries. We have a fun little social listening party that goes out on Isolated Talks Radio. Every couple of weeks, one of the listeners picks a theme and then other listeners pick tracks that they relate to that theme. Maybe they've got a story to tell about how that song relates to a theme. The playlist of everybody's songs plays out on the radio and everyone jumps on Twitter and shares the story they have that connects their track to the theme using the hashtag Sunday7Social. That's it. I think that's a really, that was a not a particularly smooth articulation of it, but um, if you worked out what it is and it sounds good, then get involved. <laughs> yeah, definitely do get involved. And if you're listening to this on the day of its release, there is a theme, Bright, and it is playing, as Jess said, 7pm. Uh, our time on Sunday where you can tune in and, and get involved with the chat on, on social. Um, how else can our listeners get more Jess Gregson? Oh, you can find me on Twitter on a really boring and old uh, profile. It's uh, Jess Rowley, it's Jess Rowley 61, so J-E-S-S-R-O-W-L-E-Y, my maiden name, 61. Um, but I'm probably most active on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn as Jessica Gregson or you can find Extra Brain Limited um, but yeah, I don't, I don't have a book out um, and I'm not doing any webinars at the moment. So you'll just have to come and find me on Twitter and make some snide music comment and then you'll get my attention. Amazing. Well, perfect. We'll, we'll, we'll link to those um, social handles as well so everyone can find you easier. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real uh, pleasure and I've enjoyed it even more than I knew I would. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you, everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the pod. Keep questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find GASP online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Yeah!